1: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
2: In the early 1990s, when I was working for Mayor Richard M. Daley in Chicago as a strategist, as a consultant, I ran into a young woman named Patty Solis, who was a really inspiring kid from the southwest side of Chicago, uh, who had a great story and a lot of energy and interest and commitment to public service. I didn't know then that she'd go on to be a major figure in American politics, uh, one of the closest aides to Hillary Clinton for 17 years, uh, her campaign manager in 2008, now a commentator at CNN. But Patty has enormous insights uh, into Hillary, into this process, and uh, we sat down and talked about it the other day. Solis Doyle, lots of people know you around this country as a political figure, someone who served in the White House, someone who ran campaigns, someone who's now a commentator on CNN uh, on politics, but uh, we know you here in Chicago as a Chicagoan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, your family and and how uh, the Solis clan came to yeah. chicago
1: well i was born and raised in chicago but my parents immigrated to chicago uh, in the early 1950s uh, my dad uh came over first uh twice illegally twice deported
2: because he couldn't get papers to come over did he? Because
1: he couldn't get papers to come over and you know my dad's the kind of guy who like never got a speeding ticket you know always the first guy to go Vote uh, on election day. Got up at four, so he'd be the first guy at the at the polls. Never bro- like paid every credit card on time in full. Never broke a law in his life, but except for this one. Um, and he and broke why?
2: It. Why did he break the law?
1: Because um, he wanted a better life for his family, for his kids. He was the youngest of um, nine kids, the only boy. His father died uh, two months before he was born in a car accident. Um, And so he had to be the man of the house uh, at a very young age. At the age of six, he had to drop out of school uh, in third grade. And he took jobs like shining shoes and selling candy on the streets so that he could help his mom, you know, live, basically, and support a family. Um, He met my mom at 15, and fell in love instantaneously, uh, and they had a very long engagement uh, of ten years uh, before my they married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, he just felt he owed it to my mother and to his kids to get a better life. Uh, he didn't want his kids to live the same kind of life he had lived.
2: So, so you settled in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, How many brothers and sisters do you
1: have? I'm the youngest of six. Uh, there's two brothers and three sisters.
2: And you were the, the first to go to college.
1: I was the first to go to college. Um, we lived in a rough neighborhood we, uh, in an area called Pil- Pilsen now. Uh, which has uh, gotten a lot better since I was a kid there. But it was a... a, uh, Like
2: many neighborhoods, gentrifying.
1: Very, yes. Uh, But it was a tough neighborhood when I was growing up. And so my dad was like, you're just not leaving the house. You're not leaving our apartment. You can go to school, come home. And uh, that was it. So with very little else to do, I studied and I did pretty well. And I got a full ride to Northwestern University. Uh, But that was even tough um oh, a
2: lesser institution on the north side of yeah. <laughs> yes
1: well great side. it's a great, place. It's a great, place. great um, place but the daughter of mexican parents um very traditional mexican parents they were like you don't need to go to college you could just get married have some kids and be happy uh and uh i fought for that uh to go to college um i did well uh and i graduated what
2: did it mean to them when you uh, having having said what they said to you what did it mean to you, them when they saw you walking down the aisle and getting that oh uh, my
1: father cried and my mother cried my whole family cried it was a very momentous occasion um for him it was a far far trip from the streets of Monterey, Mexico, shining shoes to his youngest daughter walking down the aisle in a cap and gown. Um, And and
2: probably a little bit of an affirmation of all the effort he made to get here.
1: Exactly. Um, So so
2: let me ask you on that point. uh, Immigrants, and particularly immigrants who came here illegally, have been very much in the in the debate, in mm-hmm. this presidential race. You've heard Donald Trump. You've heard others. Mm-hmm. Um, how personally do you take that?
1: Well, extremely personally. How can, how can you not having uh, a father and mother like I do? I mean, it's a—I understand. I, I'm, I'm also involved in politics, so I understand the rhetoric, and I understand the bombast, and I understand trying to win a primary. Uh, but for me, these are real people, with real families and real stories and for them to demonize, uh, these people. It's just very hurtful to me personally. Um, and hurtful to my family who have gone through a lot to get to where they are and who've all contributed to this country in their own way.
2: Yeah. You, uh, uh, you, you've got a brother who's in public office here, Mm -hmm. uh, an alderman. You've got brother who's a firefighter Mm
1: -hmm. he's a retired firefighter I have a uh, a sister who worked for the CTA here in Chicago I have uh, many nieces and nephews who are teachers Uh, one's a marine who um, has served three terms in Iraq Uh, I have uh, we have nurses we have um, and we have people raising families we have moms raising families
2: yeah solid Mm -hmm. solid contributors so far. <laughs> so uh, how did you get into public life? How did you uh, go from Northwestern University to City Hall in Chicago?
1: Yeah, so I graduated from college. And like every kid who graduated from college, they're looking for a job. Um, my brother had been a community organizer uh, at the time. and In know, that area
2: where you grew up
1: in the area where I grew up, and he's currently an alderman for the area where we grew up, which is a huge sense of pride for the whole family. But, um, you know, he just we wanted should, to... We
2: should explain to people outside Chicago that it is, in fact, a source of pride to people when they have a relative who's an alderman. <laughs> they may doubt that. But
1: yeah, uh, yeah an alderman is a big deal in Chicago. It uh, it's a very big deal, and they're and, kind of
2: the mayors of their wards, so they're ministering to people all the time. Exactly,
1: uh, and he's very well liked, and he's been doing the job for thirty years, which is fantastic. It's a real testament to what a great job he's doing. But um, so you, when I graduated, he really wanted to show me what he did. You know, he wanted to take me to rallies and canvassing and into people's living rooms and talk about their struggles uh, because that's what Danny did and my brother Danny he advocated for the people in our neighborhood and so I went along really not knowing what to expect uh, and I heard I heard you know folks didn't have health care insurance folks couldn't go to the doctor when their kids were sick you know kids were getting shot at school kids were getting beat up at school they they didn't feel safe in their communities um and then he took me to a rally and I got really pumped up uh and then he introduced me to Mayor Daly and uh some of the people that worked for him and I got a job working at City Hall uh which I very much enjoyed, but then daily ran for uh, election, re-election. And I worked on that campaign, and that's when I really fell in love because I was able to marry you know, um, what I felt was a calling t- for social justice and the game of politics, which was fantastic. I mean, when you're a young person and you're working 18 hours a day and you're working on adrenaline and you're working – competing against another team and it's just it's just a lot of fun and i thought wow this is cool uh
2: so pretty soon after that you actually you decided to play the game of politics at a bigger right level right you went down to to little rock right from from little village to little rock right so
1: um a mutual friend of ours david wilhelm was tapped to be bill clinton's campaign manager Uh, For
2: 1992, so this was 91 now. Right,
1: this is 91. I had no idea who Bill Clinton was, but I had worked with David uh, Wilhelm on Daley's campaign, and David was really struggling to find people to move to Little Rock, Arkansas to work for Bill Clinton because nobody knew who he was, much less you know did they think he was ever going to be president of the United States. So he asked me to sort of suit up, uh, and I just jumped at the shot because— you know, it's a national campaign and I loved campaigns. And um, the idea of leaving Chicago, I had never left, I'd never gotten on an airplane before, that leaving <laughs> Chicago was exciting to me. So uh, I went and it just so happened that the day I landed, Bill Clinton's wife had been complaining that she didn't have any staff people to help but her. She's named Hillary, right? <laughs> she's named yeah. Hillary. At that time, I didn't even know. What her name was. And so I landed. I reported straight to David's office, and David said, you're going to work for the spouse. You're going to love her. She's great. She's a lawyer. She's really smart. And I was very disappointed. I was like, what? No. I mean, you know, I just didn't think that's where the action was going to be. I just didn't think I would get a good experience. I just thought I was being relegated. And I was very bummed out. So. David said, "You got to go over to the governor's mansion and meet her. She's really anxious to start working with somebody on this campaign." And I said, "Okay," <laughs> so because you know, I was new, I was young, I wanted to make a good impression. Uh, so I went, and I, um, from the get-go, I could tell she was just really smart, really strong, didn't take any shit from anybody, and was just like okay here's here's what I expect from you here's what I'd like to do I've never run uh, in a national campaign before I've never uh, neither have you so we're gonna learn this thing together uh, and the most important thing for me is I need to be home for my daughter Chelsea uh, at least four nights a week and I need to go to her games so let's start with that premise and work from there and I'm
2: like because Fantastic. you were doing her scheduling. I
1: was doing I was doing everything. I was the only person mm-hmm. working for her. So I was doing her scheduling. I was traveling with her. I did her correspondence. I picked up her dry cleaning. I did everything for her for about six months until the campaign really started doing well and was able to raise more money. And she was uh, actually quite sought after in the beginning of that campaign as a, you know, as his number one surrogate, you know. It was like two for the price of one. So she was campaigning as, as hard as he was, um, along, except for that caveat, she needed to be home at night for Chelsea. Um, and it was a great, great experience. And, you know, I tell people, I started working for Hillary before she was Hillary Clinton, the icon. I started working for Hillary when she was a working mom, really. Um, uh, and so we sort of grew up uh, in politics together. Uh, and,
2: and you became very close. hmm You were, I see, you're the one who uh, t- uh, coined the phrase Hillary Land. I did. Uh, I did. So describe Hillary Land.
1: So Hil- in the beginning, Hillary Land was this group of women, and we were all women who worked for her in the beginning. Um, uh, and we were very, very... Close. I'll tell you the story. So we all it started in 92 in Arkansas. And um, we were there was a few of us, there was three or four of us at the time, all women. And we had a very small section of the campaign headquarters, this vast campaign headquarters, a very little corner next to the scheduling operation, just the three of us. I think there were three of us at one desk because we were a small operation. Um and i uh started collecting newspaper photos of hillary as she went on her campaign events i'd clip them i'd clip the photos and i put them up on the wall that was next to our desk
2: we should say we should explain to our listeners as i have before that newspapers were these things <laughs> exactly they were Actual tangible things that you could hold where they would put type and pictures. Exactly, and
1: And you'd buy them and you'd read them and you'd get your fingers dirty. think of it as a website on paper. Exactly. Yes. So the wall of pictures got some notoriety in the campaign headquarters and then um, uh, I dubbed it Hillary Land, that little corner of the office. And then from there, other areas of the campaign started you know there became Tippertown there became <laughs> <laughs> plain world that's where you know all the 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 logistical scheduling logistics was anyway um, Hillary land really stuck throughout the White House years because we came we, we became a very close-knit group of women of all sort of different ages and different colors and um, And we worked really well together. It was sort of like us against the West Wing, the East Wing.
2: Um, That's a pretty common dynamic in the White House, isn't it? Yeah. Where the the East Wing, where the First Lady is, has its own imperatives and the West Wing has its. Right. There's always a little bit of push and pull there.
1: There is. There's always a little bit of push and pull. But in this instance, it was it was much more pronounced because she was the kind of first lady that had never really existed before. Um, you know, there's no real set uh, job description for Didn't first lady. Didn't she have ladies. an
2: office down in the West Wing? She had an office. Also, that that's probably unprecedented.
1: That's unprecedented. But what was more unprecedented is she took on the role of universal health care, a huge policy uh, that the Clinton administration was going to take on. So she felt like, you know, she not only needed a, a, an office in the West Wing so that she can work with the rest of the staff, because she was like a staff person, uh, but also... Um,
2: Isn't it a statement also, though, Patty? I mean, when you, I mean, you, you measure in the White House, you kind of measure your worth, By your real estate, and the closer you are to the president. And so for her to have an office in the West Wing was to say, I am not just the First Lady, but I'm someone working on these issues uh, for the president.
1: Exactly. And that was really, it turned people off. Not just, uh, like, the media, but it turned people in the West Wing off. Like, this has never been done before. You don't, you you know. Um, So it caused some... Um, issues for us. But that's when we all sort of came together. Uh so you Hillary guys Lemon.
2: felt sort of like that's where the us against the yes. world kind of... Yes, yes, uh, yes. But,
1: you know, she also, also did the traditional first lady role. You know, she organized the state dinners. She picked the flowers. She picked the Christmas orga- uh, ornaments. She did all of that, too. It wasn't like she left something undone.
2: Let me ask you a question. You you know, I'm interested that you you had what would be... Describe what you describe as sort of a sheltered life mm-hmm. uh, in your uh, mm-hmm. home. Uh, your mother was a traditional homemaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, you get on the first plane ride you've ever taken. And now you're working for Hillary Clinton, who's a whole different kind mm-hmm. of uh, uh, woman in terms of her experiences and so on. How big a culture shock was that for you?
1: Well, it was it was huge. I mean, let's go back. I mean, my parents didn't even want me to go to college. They wanted me to get married and have kids and, you know, be happy. That was their idea of pure happiness for a woman. Um, when I went to Arkansas, you know, Mexican girls don't live outside their parents' house until they get married. So the idea that you're going to live in another state and work for someone, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, that they didn't talk to me for like six months because they thought I was making the biggest mistake of my life. So this was a completely new world for me, completely. Not only in terms of meeting all these other people on the campaign that came from all sorts of walks of life, different parts of the country, uh, Asians, you know, it just – African Americans, Hispanics, all together in one place, working towards one goal. That was also different for me. I had grown up in a very, I grew up in the Little Mexico of Chicago, and when I went to Northwestern, yes, there were uh, tons of different types of people, but I sort of kept to my own, you know, uh, my own people. Uh, so this was a huge. This was a huge. But what impacted her? But did Hillary, she have as a,
2: as kind of a role model, as a different kind of role model for you?
1: So she, here she was, uh, a woman who was clearly brilliant, extremely well-educated, extremely strong, married, with a child, um, and very much calling the shots in her own life, Uh, and I found that stunning. Um, I have a great deal of love and respect and admiration for my mother, but her life was um working uh, in the home outside of the home only to make enough money to provide dinner for her family but very much subs, you know subservient to my father what my father called the shots and here I was seeing a marriage for the first time where it was it was very equal um uh, and that was very impressive to me you
2: know it was in the Illinois primary in 92 when she got into a little bit of hot water Mm -hmm. Uh, because she uh, went to an L-stop here Mm -hmm. after a debate in which Jerry Brown was pressing Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton on what turned out to be the whole Whitewater story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she was challenged by reporters about what her role was and all of that. And she said, Mm -hmm. I I guess I could have stayed home and uh, held teas and baked cookies, but I decided to pursue my profession. What was your reaction when you heard that quote from the perspective of someone who grew up in a home where, uh, you where the mom was a traditional homemaker, did you did you feel like she was being judgmental in a way that was not was not good?
1: Well, at that point, I had been around the campaign long enough to know that that was going to be a problem. You know, uh, she had been off. That was a, just an off putting remark to many women who, you know, but was chose- it to you? It wasn't uh I did admired you but it.
2: did you know that it would be, but you knew what how about your I knew, mom I knew how would, it would be your mom problem. interpret it?
1: Um, my mom was upset she's like w- what's wrong with having cookies and tea? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know she was upset, but I wasn't I think it's, it was a very much a generational thing um uh, and I knew it was going to be a problem. I mean, you heard it come out of her mouth, and you knew instantaneously. Were you there when she said a it? I was, and you knew instantaneously. Did that you was tell her about. that? No, I had a friend of mine, Richard Mintz, tell her that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you know, as a as a as a twenty five year old woman uh, just out of college, really trying to figure out uh, what her life was supposed to be like that 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 kind of spoke truth to power. Yeah, why did I go to college to begin with? if not to pursue a career.
2: Um, so, so let's go back to the White House years. You mm-hmm. talked about this, this sort of encampment of mm-hmm. Hillary land people mm-hmm. uh, versus some of the others in the White House, but there was also a, a, a little bit of a sense of, uh, of contention, besiegement, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, that played out later mm-hmm. in terms of the, the, the press, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. attacks from the right wing, and so on how much was that sort of part of the ethos in the atmosphere there mm-hmm. that you know we're 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 under siege and we've got to fight back and
1: you know in the beginning in the beginning of the White House years we were a little you know dumbfounded by it like we didn't understand really how she could be causing so much angst <laughs> uh, among the media because why she was- do you
2: think she was
1: well um I, I think she was because she was not your normal first lady. Like we discussed earlier, she was someone who was working on public policy. She was not elected to do anything, and so I think she ruffled a few feathers that way. I think uh, uh, she was she's a very tough, smart, strong woman, and that put people off. But we didn't understand the... F- absolute fury she was causing um, uh, among the Republicans and conservative part of the Republican Party. I mean, they we ju- they just did and not like her. And she didn't serve herself well either, you know, with... There were so many different... Between Travelgate and Whitewater and from the very beginning there was just, a, you know, a general, I think distrust uh, of what her motives were but for me having worked for her her only motive really was to pass universal health care in this country and to you know impact um, people's lives in a positive way
2: on the other uh, side of the equation though um, it seemed like there was a negative sort of feeding loop there and the more that these things went on the less Mm -hmm. um, the less trusting she was that she mm-hmm. was going to get a fair shake. And so she mm-hmm. became less transparent, less revealing. Some of those controversies you mentioned stemmed mm-hmm. from uh, from that. Uh, I ask you that because, you know, the current controversy is about right. her having her own email system and her right, own right. server and so on. Um, was that an outgrowth, do you think, of that experience? Do you think she was trying to sh- shield herself from from the probing eyes of of, of what she felt was uh, the right, the media, and so on, who were out to get her? Or how would you describe it?
1: You know, I think if uh, we had lived her life and the— all of the attacks that she's... Got I asked you because
2: you kind of did live her life.
1: I did. But I wasn't i wasn't the focus of it. I mean, she was obviously the focus of it. But she has been accused of killing her friend, Vince Foster. She has been accused of, you know, whatever she was accused of being during the Whitewater investigation where she made $100,000 off of a $10,000 investment. Uh Really nasty things being said about her. uh, uh, Very nasty things being said about her husband. uh, You know, the press prying into their personal life. She's been through a lot and it's been really hard. And so I think. How could she not be distrustful of the media at this point? I don't I don't blame her in the slightest. Uh so do I think that fed into it? How could it not, of course.
2: Yeah. But you'd agree it was a mistake.
1: Absolutely, without question. She agrees it was a mistake. Yeah. Uh it was it was it was a bad call.
2: Um you talk about this interest in her in in their personal life, obviously some of that is self inflicted too, not necessarily by her. Right. Um, this has come back into the news now because right. um, Donald Trump, who I always say uh, wants to build walls but knows no boundaries, uh, <laughs> has uh, uh, raised the issue. But yeah. he raised it in, in an interesting way, and it's mm-hmm. uh, which is um, she is a self uh, proclaimed and I think legitimate a champion of women's rights. Mm -hmm. She spoke out about four women who've been abused and so on. And his point was uh, she wasn't as solicitous of the women who cropped up in unpleasant ways in her own life because Mm -hmm. of their relationships or alleged relationships with her husband. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that that a fair criticism?
1: Here's what I think about... um, that i think what bill clinton did uh in terms of infidelity was absolutely horrible a shitty thing to do Um, you were there then i was there i wasn't there uh you know during the arkansas years or no but you were there during the monica years yes it was awful it was a horrible thing to do uh it was a shitty thing to do to her um how hard but he was, did how, it. How but hard, he did it. She how, didn't do it. Right.
2: How and, hard was that? I mean, I want to get back to the other point, but how hard were those years? It was
1: awful. It was just, it was It was awful. Um, you know, he, uh, many of us thought about quitting after what he did. But when we thought about it, well, when I thought about it, I thought she didn't do anything. He He is the jerk here and why would i punish her um by quitting why why would i leave her uh but what he did was absolutely unacceptable for many of the young women who were working on that so pay
2: help people understand this gets back to the other point Uh, it's totally understandable why you wouldn't want to want to punish her the, uh, the question that people ask from a feminist perspective is, mm-hmm. why would she stay with him? Why wouldn't she punish him? And maybe you can give a, a little bit of a sense of what they're, of the, they're, I mean, I've seen them together. I believe yeah. these people love each other. Yeah. But And relationships are very complicated. So, yeah. uh, but, but it's a very hard thing f- for people to understand.
1: Look, like I said, what he did was very, very wrong. But um, I don't know. I've been married 20 years. And I, first of all, would never want to uh, and never expect anyone to understand what goes on between me and my husband in our home, in our lives, and the decisions we make and why we make them. Um, no, well,
2: you just shorten this conversation. But go okay. ahead. Okay.
1: <laughs> but uh, And so I don't. I never, what happened between them and their marriage is their business. But I will tell you this, they love each other. You see it when I worked with them closely in the White House and in Arkansas and after the White House. There is a mutual respect and admiration for certain. But there's also a lot of love. I mean, she, you know, they hold hands. He just sort of puts his hands on her shoulders and she lights up and um vice versa they take long walks together they have long conversations together it's just it's a it's a it's a very good relationship how they manage whatever happened or didn't happen is their business and i never
2: ever So that gets asked. back to this other question which and maybe you you just answered it in a way but how how you know she's been quoted not this goes to the email thing but in in documents that surface and so i'm saying unkind things about monica and others and that that's the mm-hmm. thing that people are saying like how can she vilify uh the people who had relationships with her husband and mm-hmm. still advocate for people who are you know victimized in those kinds of uh relationships and is it just too hard is it too hard when it's you and you're involved in the situation to mm-hmm. to see things in the same way?
1: Well, first of all, she may have, I think you're referring to what she said about Monica Lewinsky calling her some a loony or narcissistic, narcissistic loony. Yeah. I think that's the word. Yeah. But she said that to a friend in a personal letter. It's not like she went on television or she said it publicly. Uh, she didn't say anything publicly about any of the... Um, and you know, as a woman, if my husband were uh, uh, having some sort of extramarital affair with another woman, I'm sure I wouldn't have very nice things to say about that person privately either. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just normal. but she never i don't she never said anything publicly. Uh, and I think it's its own form of sexism to somehow... Blame the spouse for what the husband did. I think that's its own form of sexism.
2: Um, You worked for her for 16 years? Is that?
1: 17 years.
2: 17 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, when she, I remember you coming here in 2006 and talking to me about her perspective Mm -hmm. candidacy. And you Mm -hmm. told me that I've been offered this, opportunity mm-hmm. to be the campaign manager mm-hmm. uh, and i'm thinking of doing it and i remember you saying I, I i felt that you felt some obligation to do it in part because you would be breaking mm-hmm. uh a barrier that had never uh, that hadn't been broken before obviously you can't break a barrier that hadn't been broken mm-hmm. before, but uh that had been broken before but which is to be uh, the first latina to run a uh right. a presidential race I also remember telling you, "Don't do it," because uh, <laughs> yep. better to be the second or third campaign manager than the first. Correct. Um, what, what happened in in that campaign? And it, you know, how hard was it? Uh, you you were the manager, and you were the manager through mm-hmm. Iowa mm-hmm. and uh, through
1: New Hampshire. Through and New
2: Hampshire, and you. So it was a rough go there. Yeah, and you and and you were basically dispatched. Yes. So here's how hard was it, how given the the, 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 it? Rela- the nature of the relationship between the two of you. I remember yes. saying to you, it's better to be the candidate's best friend than it is to be the yeah. candidate's manager. So
1: one of your very, very smart students uh, at the IOP asked this question at the last seminar. Or the question was, you know, how difficult is it to be a campaign manager and what is your relationship with the candidate do you want to be the friend do you want to be the manager do you want to be um i think the the worst thing is to be the best friend and the campaign manager you are absolutely right um so yeah i got fired we lost iowa uh we won new hampshire but uh to you guys. I, don't worry, don't hold any grudges. Um uh,
2: Hey you you we we went and recruited you after that. So. <laughs>
1: right. But you know, the, the 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 consensus was that she needed to have a moment where she told voters, I get it, I hear you, I'm making changes, I know, okay, I'm gonna fight for this thing and part of those changes was letting me go. And I was um
2: Did you see it coming?
1: I did not see it. Well, I I saw I saw that we needed to make some changes and I was actually working to try and make some changes. I did not think that I was going to be the one who was going to be let go. Um uh but I was um big enough and adult enough and I knew that uh okay, I get it. Uh I got to go. That's fine. But then the I mean you lived through it too. There's a lot of backstabbing and a lot of blame games and right. all that kind of stuff. And that postmortems. Postmortems and that where I was the brunt of the blaming uh that I was not ready for and that really hurt. Um it hurt more because it would have hurt regardless but it hurt more because uh she and I had a very real relationship and a very real friendship and uh There was I. I felt like she wasn't defending me, but she shouldn't have. She needed to run a race. Uh, I was a campaign manager. We were losing. We lost. I needed to go. I understood that. Um, But the personal relationship made it really, really difficult. Um, So So you, you weren't
2: just did you? You weren't just losing a campaign, but you were losing one of the most formative relationships potentially
1: yeah well we got that relationship back after some time but yeah it was it was very it was it was it was hard
2: uh, so now you're watching this campaign yeah and um there must be a certain deja vu uh, sense yeah. <laughs> to you because she's run into some problems in Iowa mm-hmm. she's running into some problems in New Hampshire mm-hmm. um I still think she's going to be the nominee of the Democratic so do Party, I. but why does she run into these problems is it Is it those particular states and or is it something about her and uh, uh, her ability to sort of connect in the right way you
1: know it's so um I think she seems much more comfortable in her skin this time around than she did in two thousand and eight. And I think she's much more comfortable as a candidate. I think she's much more prepared for uh, the rigors of a campaign. I always think that you learn so much more from losing than from winning. You learn much more many more lessons from losing um, a campaign than from winning one. Um, I think that nobody likes an inevitable, front runner. Hey, Will
2: Chamberlain, the old basketball player who was, uh, you know, huge and mm-hmm. hugely talented, said nobody roots for Goliath.
1: Exactly. And that's not because they had a strategy for her to be the inevitable candidate. She just became it because you know, there weren't a lot of other people thinking about running. Um and nobody likes it, uh, particularly Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, they like to make, they like to kick the tires, they like to have a race, they like to meet the candidates. They don't like to be told who to vote for. Um, I think Iowa, in particular, poses a lot of problems for her.
2: I did note that the uh, uh, that forty three percent of the people in Iowa identified themselves <laughs> as socialists. <laughs> exactly. so it's a good base for Bernie.
1: It's a good base for Bernie, and you know she is not a socialist she uh as is a, is a professed practical progressive right um but she's seen as is is hawkish uh she's seen as tough she's she's seen as a moderate by a lot of people so Iowa poses some uh problems for her
2: um you know i, w- I was ha- in a discussion today and uh, i uh, quoted the famous Mario Cuomo line about campaigning in poetry, you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem all that comfortable with the poetry. Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton is someone who does, you know, she's. I used to say the president was uh, someone, uh, President Obama, and I suspect President Clinton as well, but uh, was the guy who uh, cracked the book open the night before the exam, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and got the A, and she was the one who stayed up all night and did the extra credit.
1: That's exact. That's exactly who she is. She like, she studies. She rolls up her sleeves. She makes sure she knows all of the different sides of every issue, so that she can be prepared to debate it with you. Uh, she does her homework, and uh, sometimes that kid in class who always gets the A's and is always prepared is not the most inspirational kid in the class, right? Um, but man. Uh do you want her running the country absolutely uh she has a level of competency that no one else has in this field um both on the Republican side and the democratic side and in this in these times we're in some very tenuous times. I think you know you want her there at the helm because, um, you know what i've 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 worked with her for a really long time, and what I find very uh interesting is that when she's doing her job when she was secretary of state when she was a u.s senator when she was first lady when she was actually doing her job her polling numbers always went through the roof i mean there isn't anybody who doesn't think she is a very capable person at her job it's when she starts running for something it's right that well i
2: think an extension of that is that she's run some very good offices mm-hmm. but her campaigns have always been kind of Riddled by the sort of uh, second guessing, backbiting, finger pointing, and uncertainty that we've that we saw in two thousand and eight. I think you there's you, you're you know you're exonerated now because we you know this last weekend as we speak there was a story in the Times of people complaining that the, President right. Clinton thought the strategy was wrong and this and that. Mm-hmm. For the life of me, I don't understand why that was a valuable piece to have in the newspaper or who thought it was. But um, her campaigns never run quite as well as her offices do.
1: Mm-hmm. Why? Um, like I said, when she's doing her job, she's doing her job. That, that is her single focus. And the people around her uh, are doing the job I think in campaigns, they're very big. They're very,
2: um, well, running the U S government's pretty big too. Yeah, it is. So the, but, but, but the, there's uh, a lot
1: of egos in, so I've got to,
2: here's my theory. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me All run right. this by you, which is that she's confident when she's in pu- her pu- public offices, she's confident in what she's doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't, Sometimes I wonder about her level of confidence in herself as a politician, not as an office holder, but mm-hmm. as a politician for the reason that I said before, which is she knows that those, there is a kind of nonlinear poetry quotient that's required. Mm-hmm. Her husband did it well. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama does it well. Mm-hmm. That's not her back. And I wonder sometimes whether she has the same level of confidence as a candidate that mm-hmm. she has in herself as a public official.
1: I think she yeah. is not as good a candidate as her husband, without question. And That's and, a high bar. Yeah. <laughs> and as Barack Obama. Right. Too high. I bars. think um, she's been doing this uh, campaigning a relatively uh, short time. Uh, in comparison to her husband, at least. She's run two Senate races and then a presidential, and now this one, a second presidential. Um,
2: There's something to be said for starting off at the grassroots.
1: Exactly. Look, she's she's not. Um, you know, Bill Clinton, he gets so much energy from the people in at his rallies, at his energy. When he's working a rope line, you can just see him light up, you know, She's tired. She gets tired. She she does it. She does it dutifully. Is it her most fun thing to do? No. Does she? um, uh, Would she rather be looking at uh, policy and going through legislation and working with a bunch of experts on how to, you know, improve uh, the Affordable Care Act? Absolutely. This is not her favorite thing to do. It's a it's a mean, you know. To an end, I guess. Um,
2: so a warrior, but not necessarily always a happy one. Exactly. No.
1: And it's a shame, you know, um, <laughs> that this is the way our political system works. But you know, I think she's doing, I think she's doing a good job. The electorate is just really, really angry. Uh, you can see it not only on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side. They're mad at Washington. They're mad at institutions, and
2: and she's an institutionalist. And she's I mean, an institutionalist. She's someone who she works is. through. Yeah, that's her. Probably her, her, her greatest selling point is she knows how to work within institutions to get things done. done. But at a time when people are unhappy about institutions, that isn't necessarily an unalloyed asset. Look at the people who are making a big splash this season, you know, Trump, exactly. uh, Sanders. Although I think Bernie's a little more of an institutionalist than he – You can't be in Congress for 25 years and not be an institutionalist.
1: It's true, but he's he's – Somehow, as a 74 year old, he's fresh and new because no one really knew who he was up until this time. Hey, listen, as a 60 year old, I find that inspiring. (laughs) Exactly. I'm uh,
2: something to aim for. But, you know,
1: we're we're, we're saying, we're talking about this, you know, and how Iowa and New Hampshire poses some problems for her. But I think once you get past New Hampshire, I think she has such um, a following with minority voters, uh, and the calendar really favors her. There's no doubt in my mind that she's going to be the nominee. Um, um, And she's always better in a fight than she is when something's handed to her. I mean, that was proven in 2008 Mm -hmm. um, when she fought to the death with your former boss. Yes,
2: yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, And she got better. Without Uh,
2: question. I always said she was a great candidate in 2008 and a not-so-great candidate in 2007.
1: Exactly. And so I think this is good for her. I think uh, the fight and working for it is really good for her, and it will pay off in the later states.
2: Well, on that cheerful note, Yay. Patty, you're a, you're an inspiration, and oh, your story is you. is, um, is is one that uh, I know young people here at the Institute of Politics have have gravitated to because you've proven that uh, you can be whoever you set out to if you uh, if you get that opportunity and you go after it, and it's inspiring. So, well, thank fa- you. Thanks for being with
1: us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute
0: of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.